Aloha! You are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. Really excited to have Chris Wallace with us today on the pod. I've known Chris now for about 15 years in a variety of settings. I first met him uh, when he was working as a senior consultant uh, with the Arbinger Institute, who was the director of their facilitation services. His career before that and, and sometimes during that was also deeply interesting to me as the clinical director of the Anasazi Foundation, working with troubled youth out on the trails. He has his PhD in psychology. He's currently a licensed marriage and family therapist and is working on all sorts of interesting things. And I've wanted to have Chris on. We're in for a really fascinating podcast together, but he actually sent me a note recently that got me really thinking and it's so aligned with so many of the things that I've been hearing feedback from the book Dangerous Love and questions and especially people also that are very familiar with the Arbinger Institute and the language um, that's there that was very influential uh, in what what I wrote in Dangerous Love as well. I thought this is the perfect time to to have Chris on and and one cool thing about Chris is Chris has actually been you know applying these principles for years with his clients and his work, and even recently using Dangerous Love and some of that as well. And so I'm really excited to have you on the pod. Welcome on, Chris. Glad to be here. Thanks, Judge. Chris, let's start with a little introduction to you and talk to us a little bit about your journey. And I'm always really interested in why people do what they do and why you're, and you are very passionate about the work that you do and why you do it. Um, well, it's kind of an odd journey. I, first of all, I had a great uh, undergraduate experience. I went to an all-girls college outside New York and was one of the first guys let in. And what I fell in love with there was because they didn't have grades or tests at this college, you really learned how to learn. And it, it got me fascinated with things at a deeper level than I'd ever considered before. I ended up at BYU and a roommate of mine, a terrific human being named Steve, um, woke me up in the middle of the night one night and said, you gotta read this. And he handed me a page that had nine principles of self-betrayal on it. And this is back in 1978. And I read that and we stayed up all night talking about those. They immediately had made sense to us, but also immediately let us know we didn't know what we were talking about. So we both approached Warner, we began to study. And as we began to study that, I realized I had found something I thought would be helpful to others because it was helping me immediately. I was, I was already in that, experiencing that my life was changing. And so whatever that was 42 years ago, from then until now, I would say that then I had a lot of bad days and a few good moments. And across that journey now, I can say I have a lot of good days and only a few bad moments. So. That's been a fun journey. I, I ended up getting a degree at that point, um, was able to, I actually had a blast. Um, another professor and I, a guy by the name of Terry Olson, we applied um, for a federal grant in 1982 and got that and used Arbinger as a third of that grant. We were in the arena of sex education, but it was an alternative to it. We drew upon Arbinger, we drew upon moral reasoning, we drew upon the family across generations. And that experience just got me deeper and deeper into Arbinger, because we'd go train teachers. And the teachers were blown away. And the stories that would come out of there were just fantastic. Um, and and the, I was just learning all the time how to teach it better, how to teach it better. So I just kept doing that. And then when I got my degree, I went, I've worked at a variety of places. Um, uh, residential treatment centers, Anasazi, uh, Center for Change, now currently just in a private practice in American Fork. But I still have loved meeting a client. Actually, this is, a, this is actually an important point. As much as um, I love Arbinger and how it's been taught across the years, I've realized it's far more malleable than we ever imagined. It's, there's, you're one of the first that I ever saw that started thinking about it in a different way. And I remember one of the first things I ever heard you saying blew me away and realized I've been coming at this in a really structured way, too structured. You said that 
um, this is back in a long time ago, so 2005, 2006, you said that the, the seminars were okay for going into a, a company or even maybe at Anasazi, but in conflict resolution, you had to come at it differently. You had to come at it with a field guide. Well, that was mind expanding for me. And that got me started thinking, is there another way to think about this stuff? There's another way to translate this, interpret this, come at this, come at this. And so I've been doing that ever since with any client that, that I had at the time and the companies I'd be in. But probably the biggest change for me came when I, I left Arbinger in, in 2017 and went to work for a, uh, a hospital for women with eating disorders. And I started teaching them the way we would teach Arbinger talking about inward mindset and an outward mindset, the box, in the box, out of the box, it didn't land. It just didn't make sense to them. And so I realized, I, I know, I like the ideas. I just think maybe there's another way to talk about it. I kept changing, changing, changing that till the point that all of a sudden I started to see recognition from them. And by the time I had gotten there, I had had some realizations that I think were uh, significant. And I mentioned those to Jim Farrell. And he said, oh, we got to put you in front of us. So he invited me to the summit last year and went and taught about it. But what I had actually ended up doing was taking a deep, deep dive into the worst end box and began to discover that was primarily about, well, in contrast to what I see dangerous love, I hear you talking about conflict between two people or peoples. And what occurs to me when I read Dangerous Love is I'm talking about a conflict within a person where they become divisive inside themselves. And that's what had grown out of the work with the women with the eating disorders. But now I'm working with people in a, with a variety of, of challenges. And it's, it's literally, it changes from person to person, but the fundamental pieces are there. And so I, I don't know if that helps you kind of tell you something about my journey, but You've been one of the significant players in that. Just for a comment here and there that I'm off and running. Well, you've been the same for me. And the way you think deeply about not just the philosophy, though I think you enjoy the philosophy and, and you're really well-versed in it, but again, this this field work of having to go and apply it in in, in individualized situations and and so you know what one approach and it, it makes a lot of sense and you know I, I support one of the approaches Arbinger has is the workshop setting where you know even now with a you know PowerPoint slide or whatever you're going to come in and sort of present material and take people on a journey sort of collectively together but as as you've taught me throughout the years as well right individuals vary on this and the and the way uh, to be able to get to them the language that we use the exercises that we take them through the journeys that they have to go through often uh, i've used this analogy before like one way to like play music is to play sheet music and you know if you can get really good at it it can be beautiful, but then there's this other way of playing like jazz and, and you know the musical theory, uh, but you have to improvise to the situation that's at hand. And that I think that's sort of the reference to the field guide and and in conflict, I think a lot like the sort of therapy that, that you're engaged with, it's a constant reinvention um, while still grounded in some basic philosophical principles but how you present those, how you talk about those, and you know, dangerous love was an outcrop of that in the conflict field. And you're right that most of my book is wrestling with conflict with others, uh, conflict either with a, an individual or a group of individuals. And this was the email that that you sent me about the struggle with self conflict, self blame, and unwillingness to see our mistakes as just that mistakes, but instead sort of see mistakes as character flaws and how that not only, by the way, exacerbates conflict with others, it certainly does that. Uh, but, but the toll that that takes on individuals, I think is, is a lot of your work. And, and I'm really curious, maybe we can start with, and I don't know if it's unique or not, but uh, having had a very close family member that also struggled with an eating disorder, you know, I've had some uh, firsthand experience this with uh, as well. 
talk to me about what you were doing or how you were changing your approach in a way that landed with individuals that were struggling with eating disorders. Um, with, with, yeah, I'm just going to dive in where I kind of got to because it's really informed what I'm still doing today. Um, what I told Jim Farrell was, as I was doing this deep dive into the worse than box, less than, whatever, um, I, I was working with women in these groups who many of them worked for companies that Arbinger had already done training with. And they had not been able to recognize themselves in the training, and yet they were living, literally living in the worse than box. And it's because it wasn't explained to them in a way. So my way was, I'm always wanting a whiteboard. So imagine, if you will, the horizontal line with an individual stick figure drawn at either end, okay? And I put that on a board. This is how I finally got to it. And I would say, if this is me, I label one of them me, and if this is another person, if I'm seeing them as a person, then they matter like I matter. And I matter like they matter. Now, that's, that's not been said anywhere in Arbinger. And I remember the day I said it was, am I out on a limb here? Am I in trouble? But it, they went, yeah. And they pushed back and said, no, no, I don't matter like others matter. And I realized they're going down. They're, they drop down. They're not on this horizontal line where they see others as equals. You make mistakes, I make mistakes. So if, if you matter like a person, if you matter like I matter, then you have hopes, dreams, concerns, and those will matter to me also, as I see you engaged in your world, in the world you live in. Well, that means I can't make myself nothing. I, too, must, my concerns, my hopes, my dreams, my fears, they have to matter to me also. And then if I make a mistake, I see it in the context of, well, you make mistakes, too. I, I'm okay. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. We'll, we'll work at it. We'll try to get better. That's what we do when we see each other as people. Really do that. But these women weren't doing that. When they, through across a lifetime, they're in many ways, they were taught to see themselves through the eyes of others, they were taught how to judge themselves. But they had gone down where they felt less than others. And so their primary feeling was, no, I matter less. Others matter more. And that began to be a space to explore. And I, I began to find that, number one, Calling things an eating disorder, I think, is a bit of a misnomer. It, 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 I talked with Terry Warner, and he said, yeah, it's like telling uh, a drug addict, a heroin addict, he's got a, an injection disorder. The eating disorders, whether you binge or you restrict or you do self-mutilation, that's all a way to numb out so I don't have to feel. So I feel it's primarily an emotion disorder. It's a relationship disorder. And as we got down there, they had positioned themselves always as less. And that got a lot of curiosity going. And I said, okay, so tell me more about that. And they began to share that they would often be comparing themselves to others. And that comes hand in hand with dropping down to the worst sandbox. That's what I'm going to do. Moreover, um, I will build across a lifetime. Now, I'll do this even when I'm up on the line seeing people's people. I'll still be de developing a sense of who I am, an image, right? But down here in the worst then, that image becomes perfect. That image becomes all the shoulds that I should be. It becomes ideal. It becomes I'm in control, everything. So I have an image of myself that I call pretty lovingly the Franken self, stitched this being stitched together from all the approvable things I've seen other people do that I know that I should be. And that, quite frankly, I can never live up to. So I actually, I split when I go down into an ideal self and an unworthy self, a less than self. And the women weren't recognizing that in the seminars. They heard the worst than box, but they really didn't hear anything around that to tie into and go, yeah, that's me. So as you hear that, I'm curious, Chad, what do you hear about that? Because I, I don't know if that shows up as much in your work but it has to be there in the background of people who are struggling with others. Well, it there's two big things that that really resonated with me when you were when you were talking right now, Chris. One is around conflict styles, which I write about in the book. And and one way that people misinterpret conflict styles is the style of accommodation. 
right? Yes. Like accommodation is a way to solve conflict. And so what I do is I'm very alive to your needs, wants, and desires, and then I meet them as a way of resolving conflict. But it's entirely unsustainable. On the surface, it looks, oh, they're selfless, they're giving, they're kind, you know, all of those things, which, which can be true. But when my needs aren't getting met, over time, that becomes unsustainable and, and the fissures in the conflict begin to widen, I, whether it's that people can't sustain that level of giving because they get so burnt out themselves and their, their needs go so unmet for so long that, that they crash or whether resentment starts to come in because sometimes the attempt of accommodation is an attempt to get love back. And so if I sacrifice, if I do this, if I do this, there's an expectation that at some point the other person is going to turn towards them, be grateful, and then reciprocate back. And then when that doesn't come, the self-doubt, the self-loathing actually increases, right? It, it's like, I can give, but you don't give it back in return. And so it's really interesting how many people will tell me, oh, I'm good at conflict. Look at the way that I compromise here or give in here or everything else. And that's, that's actually not good conflict. Uh, collaboration requires that not only do I see other people's needs, wants, and desires, but that I see my own and that we work together to try to meet all of those needs, right? Not just one. And the you know, competition goes the other way where I'm trying to meet mine and I disregard others. And and I think that one's easier to see sort of in the way that we think about inward, outward mindset and the, and the model is taught. It's harder to see it actually in accommodation because on the surface, it, it looks good. Yeah, it looks great. And they actually feel it's a righteous thing. Yeah, and people praise them for it uh, as well. And so they actually get positive reinforcing feedback that one of the things that makes them great is that they're always giving. Yeah, but they're giving and giving and giving and I'm not getting. And that surfaces from time to time and you can you can hear the resentment. You can hear the hurt in that. But actually, you're, you're, you didn't draw the diagram, but on your webinar, you had a diagram of of cooperativeness and assertiveness and you put those five circles on there and they were fantastic what that's done for me quite frankly is all fine most of my clients are really <laughs> steeped in avoiding or accommodating because they, they're not assertive but that gave me a way to say okay what's the tiniest assertion you could make for yourself this week and they they what was interesting is they'll they'll come up with something and they know it's a little bit that they need to do. So we're, we're really baby stepping along that continuum, trying to nudge up to assert here and assert there. And we walk through what it might look like, how others might respond. And that has, I mean, even that diagram has allowed me to help people locate and realize the problem of accommodation and how come it hurts so much. And it's not, look, accommodation can be okay. Right. You know, if if uh, my wife and I want to go see a movie and she really wants to see a movie and I don't really care. Uh, right. It's fine to say, oh, let's go to the movie you want to go to. Right. But it's on those issues where we care and we have needs and we don't vocalize those needs or we we sublimate them immediately because we don't want to cause waves or we're afraid of conflict or what have you. And and, you know, I on that webinar we talked a little bit about what needs those conflict styles meet, right? So what, what need does a common accommodation meet and it meets the need to be loved, right? Like if I give in, that's my fear is that I'm not loved, right? So if I give in all the time, I will be loved because I'm always giving you what you want. And that's not, yeah. and you know, in the, in the book, I refer to that as easy love, right? Like that, that sort of love is great. It's great when people love us, you know, take care of us, love us, do things for us all the time, right? Are always sort of mindful to us. That's great. But real love requires that reciprocity. It, it requires loving someone even when things are hard. And I think for a lot of people in the worst than box, they don't believe they can be loved if things are hard. They, can, they don't believe they can be loved if they have needs or wants or desires that are going to put 
someone out or make them sacrifice something or whatever. They believe that the relationship essentially will die, right? Yeah. If, if, if they assert those things, and that's why it's so scary because they want to be loved. They want the relationship to, to be successful, but they don't know how to be present in the relationship and be alive to their own needs and still keep the relationship going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah, I like that's one of the reasons I raised the webinar because it had that those insights, and it's right where again where my clients struggle is. I'm trying to get something, and it's just the sort of thing that's not going to get me what I'm trying to get, unless I'm I'm around. I guess maybe on occasion they'll be around someone who does thank them, and so they'll get some reinforcement to keep pursuing that. But yeah, and there's also some cultural message messages as well, and it's not a surprise that that uh, uh, probably a majority of the clients that you're working with were women uh, in this setting. Right. I think in Arbinger, we, we see this, you know, a, a lot as well, because there's all sorts of cultural messages about how women are supposed to be. And, and the, the, you know, the qualities that make you a good or righteous woman that make it easy to sort of fall into that accommodation, giving in, sacrificing everything for the good of the family or for the good of the kids or for my, my partner's career or whatever are desirable qualities. And, and they're, but they're also dehumanizing ones. Yep. And they hurt, they hurt. So one of the, for example, last week, um, the, she would kill me if I gave you too many details, but I have a client who's um, in her sixties, uh, decades of struggling with an eating disorder. And she really latched onto these ideas at Center for Change. And so we've continued to do therapy even after I left there. And I asked her a question. Um, I was asking her, for example, her um, dietician recommends that she exercise, do certain things with her body, all good recommendations. And so I asked her, okay, how many, you have that. I, I want to ask you a little different question do you ever have a sense to get up and exercise when you get up in the morning or sometime during the day? Do you ever have a sense for you? Hey, I need to exercise. If I want to be in this longer lasting relationship with my husband and my children, this would be helpful for me to do. It's a need I have. And she said, I have that every day. Okay. So just looking at the last couple of weeks, how many times have you yielded to that sense? And how many times have you resisted that? She said, well, I've exercised once. And then she, she had a slew of justifications. She just started laying them out. It's hard. It's, I'll never, I never stick to things. I'm not the sort of person who I, I always keep screwing up. I, I keep falling out of recovery, etc. And I, I remember thinking in the moment, because this was another crazy direction for me, Arbinger, in their literature, they describe this act we do that gets us to the point where we're self-deceived about ourselves and others. And it's called self-betrayal. I'll have a sense of something to do for another, and I don't do that, and it sets in motion a whole string of consequences of needing to feel justified, blaming, uh, feeling victimized, taken advantage of, put upon, I'll exaggerate their faults, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember jumping up to a whiteboard and drawing this out as not a betrayal of, a betraying a sense I had for somebody else's need, but my own. And so I put, what was the sense? Uh, I, I'd exercise today. Okay. And you resisted that. You betrayed that. So you get in a box. But what do I put in the box? And so I drew a line and I put me. And then on the other side of that box, I put the, the negative voice, the inner critic, um, the perfectionistic voice, you know. And we just walked through and she filled it in. And instantly it was, uh, I can tell you what she wrote. I wrote it down. Um, about herself, she says, I'm weak-willed, I'm a failure, I'm pathetic, I'm never enough, I'm fat, I'm stupid. And I said, so what's the negative voice telling you? That I'm a loser, I'm not enough, I'm an embarrassment, uh, I'm an annoyance. And she said, then she had this insight. Um, Ed, <laughs> the eating disorder, comes in right behind the negative voice. She says, it's always been piggybacking on the negative voice. And it's the one that says I'm fat. It's the one that points out all my failures. And all of a sudden we had this discussion where she said, 
everything I just have been thinking is uh, just, you know, uh, a reason why I'm, I'm never going to make it. I've just discovered as a justification that I have only when I betray myself. And I said, well, what do we do then? Yeah, it was a while. I said, what do we do then? And she said, I think I just ought to commit to doing, if I have a sense to exercise, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to yield to that. Okay? So that was on a Thursday. I get an email on Sunday. This is the email. I don't know what's going on, but I'm feeling love for my mother. It's abiding with me. I don't even understand it. I've recovered my sense of my mother's humanity, and I'm loving her. I'm still trying to figure out the connection. It's, it's a weird story because it's nothing like everything, anything I ever taught for years with Arbinger. It's like I'm going the wrong direction. I'm too self-focused. But look, everything about me is in the context of other relationships. And even I can betray myself toward myself because I have needs. I have things I ought to be doing. I have things I ought to stand up for. And I'll have a sense of that from time to time. But when I betray that, I now give to the negative voice, that inner critic, I give them all the ammunition they need to keep telling me I suck as a human being. It's, um, you know, it's really fascinating if, and I don't want to do, because I, I don't want people to fall asleep, that the whole idea of the podcast is this is not the podcast that you turn on to go to sleep at night uh, by diving <laughs> do, too deep into philosophy. But if you think about some, some of the philosophical roots that Terry Warner was digging into in this sort of rejection of the Descartes idea of I think, therefore I am, of this, you know, hyper focus on self, thinking, taking up a more Martin Buber-esque sort of approach of uh, I, it, I, thou with the hyphen, reiterating this idea that there is no me outside of my relationship with others. You know, one way to sort of logically take this is there's no me. Right there, there's only me in connection to others, but the emphasis sort of goes towards others, right? And yeah, and in and it's a corrective that that frankly I think especially uh, us in the West need to really be mindful of. I think Buber is deeply onto something, as is Warner, around this idea that when everything is self-focus, it it betrays everything that actually works in a relationship. Right. When everything's inward mindset, when everything's self-focused, you are going to mess up every relationship that you're in because it's denying the connection that you have to the other person. But I think you can also go the other way and be so focused on on the other, the thou or or the it, that you recognize that you don't recognize that in Buber's formulation, there's an I. Uh and 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 that I is there. And that if you think about, you know, a definition I use in the book is that conflict is our inability to collaboratively problem solve with others, right? That's when we experience conflict. The, the most common way to think about that is the other person's being difficult and they're not giving me what I want and they're, they're in my way and everything else. But it can be equally true that that inability to collaboratively problem solve with others is, uh, is with me uh, because I can't even articulate what I need. Or I can't uh, advocate uh, for what I need. I can't creatively come up with solutions to problems that face us because I'm not present enough in the relationship to, to really come up with a solution like that. And so for me, that makes perfect sense that if she's sort of recovering that sense of self and, and needs, in this case, exercising or whatever, it actually makes her alive right so that relationship can be half dead either way right i and i it relationship is a half dead i don't see my connection to the other person i am connected i loved you know terry warner's early uh thinking i think the uh original title for his manuscript of bonds that make us free was bonds of anguish bonds of love like we're bonded either way but i also think that i also think there's probably like an it and it thou and an it it and and we can be sort of dead dead to ourselves 
in in a way that can be just as damaging to a relationship uh, and, yeah. and and cause that inability to collaborative problem solve and and actually invite other people to see us as its. Uh, invite other people to not participate in collaborative problem solving with us because we never show up. We never really talk about or advocate for our needs. So they just plow ahead doing whatever they, they think is best or because we always give in. There's just a, there's a, an almost sort of training to see my needs as unimportant or immaterial or just non-existent, even when they're, they're actually there. So I had this, I had this thought, I, Mitch Warner did this thing uh, a couple of years ago that I really liked. He, he took a, a, you know, the flip chart sheet, the one with the stick, the big sticky note, and he wrote on it, um, I matter less. Okay. And he pasted that right across his whole front here, right across his chest. So he's now got this great big marquee on his chest that says, I matter less. He says, what if I step into a meeting? with this. So whether you put I matter less or I'm always accommodating, whatever it is, if I'm carrying that way of understanding and experiencing myself, how do I go into conflict situations? How will I invite people to respond to me? Because it's glaring, it's blaring out there. They they read that pretty quickly. So I set myself up again and again and again. Exactly. And you can say, look, what I'm really looking for is someone who sees past that and digs and digs and digs and asks questions after questions after questions that's deeply committed to uprooting my needs. And that's what I really want. It's almost like a litmus test of a relationship. I mean, I've had people talk about this. Like if they just spent time asking me over and over and over again, eventually it would come out. And while I can see that as being true, and, and maybe you have a really skilled partner who understands that and is so deeply committed to a culture of collaboration in the relationship that they do that, that's that's not the norm uh, for people. And it's still sort of blame in conflict. Like if they would do this, this, and this, eventually my needs would come out. If they would create the space for me, uh, I could uh, you know, articulate those things. And while that might be true, that that would all be helpful. Right, just as we would say in Arbinger, it'd be helpful for the other person to turn first, right? It would be a powerful invitation if they see me as a person. It's a powerful invitation for me to see them back. It it's still it still surprisingly doesn't work as well as you think it will work because when they do all the effort to do that, I can still find ways to sabotage that. I can still find ways to find justifications for not giving it in because it's actually when they're doing that, they're threatening my justifications. So you had a line on, it's on page 11 of the book. I, when I saw the line, I was blown away because it, again, it's the kind of a line that I can use. I can make sense out of, I can translate, I can turn it into something useful. It's this line. That was the first clue that maybe Miriam wasn't seeing Mahmoud the same way she wanted him to see her. It's at the bottom of the page. It's a stunning line that she has this realization that, wait a minute, he's got troubles that, uh, that I ought to have some compassion towards. But then take that in terms of this, if I'm in a it, it I, I see myself as an it to begin with. I've got, to, it seems to me, I don't, and I don't want to make this into some rigid thing, but it seems to me that part of me doesn't see the other, I, I'm begging that you see me, my other part of me see me compassionately, but I'm not seeing the other part of myself compassionately. So, so I, I mean, I actually had a client who told me, hey, um, when they heard the story of Miriam and Mahmoud, she said, I, I, I wish I had I'd married a person like Mahmoud cause, to be in conflict with because compared to my husband, he was easy. <laughs> okay? But even more troubling is when I'm in conflict with myself, I, I don't have compassion for myself. I throw that out. I think I have that for everybody else but not me. So another line on page 20, I'm not responsible for how I see others. They are. That's that smog view. But what if, how do I see myself? I am, do I feel I am responsible for how I see myself because I'm a total screw up and I, I give myself proof every day what a loser I am. So I've actually, I have found that the smog cocoon metaphors are actually very powerful for my clients to be able to explain them 
and then ask them, your view of yourself, is it a smog view or is it a cocoon view of your challenges and your struggles? And they go, it's a smog view. And just being able to say it's a smog view allows us to put it over there and look at it, give it a name, instead of saying that's a character flaw for me. No, that's a thing I'm doing. That's something I can do something about. So, I mean, that's what I find about the book. It's rich with a number of lines that I just find that come to mind when I'm with clients in terms of where they're at. And we just keep exploring, well, how did Miriam do that with Mahmoud? What happened? What, what actually transpired? What helped her see his humanity? And um, I know a little more about that story that you didn't put in the book for, for good reasons, but that story is amazing. I wish she would be okay with everything about it. But it's an amazing story about how that she recovers a sense of his humanity in this piercing way that he's, he's no longer a sexist old guard jerk. He's a real father with concerns, and it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, Chris, this isn't in the book. It hit me after I'd written the book, and I just started the podcast, and it just like, it hit me one night because I, there's a, there's a, uh, it, it's not always this exact phrase, but it's, it's something like this that I hear so much. And I don't know why I didn't write about it in the book. And I wish I would have, because I think it would have helped address some of the issues that you're raising today. Uh, but I did do a podcast though. I did a solo one and it was a stream of consciousness at the time. This idea that the smog view, one of, one of the ways that it sort of manifests itself is this narrative of not enough. Yes. Right. And it yes. can, and not enough goes both ways. Right. One way, in fact, probably the way that we think about it most is, is this sort of way, the self-blame, the you know, self-conflict. I'm not enough. Right. I can't ever meet other people's expectations. I can, I'm not lovable. I'm not competent. I'm not capable. I'm not smart. I mean, you know, you, know, you, you, you name it. Right. All of these things. And when we're trapped in that smog view, we can always find a mistake that we've made or some sort of justification that continues to fuel that narrative, that story um, that we tell about ourselves. It's, it's always there because, you know, truthfully, we, as, as you point out, we all make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And so if all I need is a couple of, uh, you know, pieces of evidence of times when I made a mistake to tell myself that I'm not enough, uh, I'm going to be able to find it. And then I get trapped in that pattern. It goes the other way, too, with others where we tell tell ourselves a story about other people that they're not enough. They they've hurt us. So they're, they're, they're not enough. They they've made mistakes and those mistakes have crossed some sort of line. And so they, they can't be enough that um, so much of the context of, of, of many of the dis- debates that I see in the world right now are pointing out how other people aren't enough. And, and if they're not enough, it becomes the onus on them to become enough and probably the standard is going to keep moving and raised and, and it's, going to, it's going to be a, a hard target to hit, which means they're never going to be enough. And therefore, I'm justified in sort of cutting, cutting myself off. We think we're going to cut ourselves off, but we're just bonding ourselves in anguish to this relationship that way. And then the same one with the self-view, right? Like if I'm not enough, it's, it's the sort of justification, the smog view that's powerful enough to be okay not being present in a relationship or being okay not uh, talking about my needs, wants, or desires because, you know, compared to this other person, I don't want to appear needy. I don't want to, I don't want to be a burden uh, to people. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to be the person in this relationship. That's the, the hard work. And, 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 and so, and so therefore I, I, I check out. And but I do it in the name of accommodation or, you know, being kind or, you know, not wanting to burden, you know, other people. And, you know, to me, this this phenomenon is is the phenomenon that I struggle with. I've struggled with it my whole life. I've struggled with not feeling like I'm enough and it excusing all sorts of things. I, you know, I talked a little bit on that podcast that I have like a lot of social anxiety. And a lot of that has to do with not feeling like when I show up in those social settings, I'm going to be enough. I'm not going to say the right thing. I'm not, 
going to, you know, do the right thing. You know, people are going to come away disappointed uh, that, you know, people have heard about me or something I've done. Their expectations are too high. There's no way that I can hit them, you know, and all of those things debilitate my ability to actually have healthy relationships and debilitate my ability to, to, to solve conflict. And I find myself sometimes swinging the other direction and in moments of self-righteousness, talking about others in a way that is hyper-focused on their flaws and, and in a way that seems to disqualify them from friendship, from working together, from solving our solutions together. I think it, it explains in many ways the, 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 the political sort of polarization that we have in our, in our country today. All I need to do is explain how the other person's not enough and it can justify anything. And, and, and I was curious, do you hear that concept a lot, uh, Chris, in, in your work, this, this not enough uh, yeah. idea? Yeah, it's ubiquitous. Well, funny you should ask it that way. So I'll give you a little heads up. So I met with a client right before uh, we started this podcast. We started talking with each other. And I realized that, that we met the hour previous and about quarter till I felt anxiety just shoot through my body. Started in my stomach. I started getting, I wasn't breathing well. <laughs> so I turned to my client and I said, um, and it was a teletherapy, so it's across the video. And I said, oh, I, I just, I'm, because we were talking about his anxiety in the beginning. I said, can we take, make space here for my anxiety? Because it's peaking. I explained to him what I was doing. And I said, so tell me what to do. And he walked me through everything that I'd been working him to do. And he just walked me through it and said, well, let's get you back in your body. Let's get you safe. Let's get you calm. So we were doing breathing. <laughs> I started doing a little tapping. I get calmed down. And because I'm realizing in that moment, at 15-2, I went, I'm going to get on that thing with Chad, and I'm going to sound like an idiot. He's going to, I've listened to him. He's competent. And he makes such good sense. And I'm going to sound like an idiot. So I was doing that just minutes before. That's okay. I do it every time that we're on a podcast and it's a common thing with our guests as well. And so, you know, look, there's a moment of, and uh, in, in you're very self-deprecating, Chris. I've met you your whole life. I think you have, one thing that you've picked up from this language is the ability to be uh, self-aware, Right. And and I and I think this is one of the beautiful things that that Arbinger gives us is the ability to overcome our self-deception and be able to be self-aware again, because self-deception is, is having us be anything but uh, right. Self-aware. But I think for people like you and for people like me, uh, sometimes where it can not always be healthy is that the self-awareness becomes justification. Yep. <laughs> right yep. it in and of itself it becomes justification now i'm aware of my weaknesses my flaws i can see how i should have uh framed that question differently i can see how i wasn't really being alive to their humanity in the moment and i'm taking accountability and responsibility for my actions but then instead of it just being a mistake that i can just yep. own and move on from it becomes a character flaw that eats yep. at me yep. that i can't escape and um, and at times it shouldn't. It's a misreading. It's a misunderstanding of everything we're talking about in dangerous love and everything the arbiter is talking about. But it, I think it's a common sort of misunderstanding is to get is to get that and allow that self awareness to tear us apart. Yeah, it's interesting. My clients um, they told me one day when I was talking about this horizontal line where we're equally human and they matter like I matter. I thou. And they were, so we went down to the I matter less, and they said, yeah, what's interesting about that is up there on the horizontal line, I can see I make mistakes, and I can see others make mistakes, and that's part of life. That's just what we do. But the moment I come down here and the I, I matter less, the worst end box, I am the mistake. But if I go up on top, well, the others are the mistake. Right. <laughs> and I'm just cycling through that all day long, every day of my life. So if we, part of what I'm helping them see or trying to help them see is this is something we do. It's not who we are. We can be different. And oftentimes it's just going and finding someone who loves them enough 
somewhere in their lifetime that just loved, loved, loved them. And can you remember that feeling, what that was like, that they allowed you to show up with all your mistakes and they just loved you? They often have that experience. And I always find that's, that's a leverage point for me to begin helping them. Well, how were they able to do that? How come that was possible for them? What did they know and understand about life? What, what could we learn from them? And all of a sudden, they're outward. They're, 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 they're going outside themselves. They're concerned about other things. And we're, anyway, we're, I don't know if I've got all, I don't think I have all the answers at all. I think I have a very tiny understanding, and it's, but it's certainly helping people who struggle with depression, anxiety, even the OCD, eating disorders, PTSD, as they crawl into these spaces and begin to recover a sense of others' humanity and their own, they start having freedoms in terms of the thoughts and feelings they just haven't had before. And then they respond differently to people. So I had a client, uh, again, a woman in her 50s. She was in her third marriage. She'd been sexually abused multiple times as a child and then as a teenager. And her husbands were a mess. Uh, She's in this third relationship. And we were talking about this I Matter Less place for several weeks. Started to make a lot of sense to her. She could really see how she did that but didn't know how to stop that negative voice. And so I tried this experiment with where I would actually have, and it's actually drawn from um, truth and reconciliation in my mind, some of the processes they did there, that she would take the role of the negative voice, sit in one chair, and put a version of herself mentally over here in another chair. And she would... Then as the negative voice, she would tell herself what she says to herself. Not to just do it, but to actually say, I tell you you, that you're fat. I tell you you're not enough. I tell you you'll never be it. No one will ever desire you. I tell you these things. That was step one. Step two, um, because she could have no justifications in there for why she said those things. Step two was she was to tell the impact of that. And then she was to, um, she'd say that's hurtful, it's damaging, it's undermining, it's demeaning. And then number three, she would apologize for that. And then she would ask, do you have anything to tell me about the impact of this on you that I don't know and I don't recognize? So she said, yeah, that's interesting. We'll think about that. She went away. So she's gone for about a month and she comes back and she said, I did it this morning. I found a picture of myself when I was six and I printed it off on a eight and a half by 11 page and uh, I put it on the chair and I walked through that exercise. Then I picked it up and I walked over and I laid down on the bed and I just held that picture and cried for hours. She said, those were good tears. There was me crying for that little girl and recovering a sense of that's who I really am. Not someone who men get to do whatever they want with. She said, then she said this thing. I've gotten into the industry of helping others. So I'm in an addiction organization. I help people with their addictions. I realized this morning, I don't have to do that anymore. That doesn't have to be my life purpose. She said, I think I've been doing that out of a desperation to fix myself or to maybe if I give back enough, I can actually do this. But today I thought, there's other things I think I would like to do. It's interesting when they begin to just get even a tiniest sense of who they are, who they really are. It's just a vulnerable, transparent, living, mistaking human being. Just worlds open up for them. Possibilities open up for them. Well, the work you're doing uh, I don't know how to describe it other than that's that's holy work. Whether we struggle with that with ourselves or we struggle to see other people in the exact same way that you described as, you know, human beings that make mistakes and have flaws and stumble and sometimes predictably stumble and sometimes stumble over and over and over again. Um, being alive to that and finding a way to love that you know, that's, that's why it's dangerous love, right? Finding a way to love that in ourselves and in others is the path that's going to ultimately bring us outward. It's the path that's ultimately going to bring us to that, to that space 
where we can truly connect. And, you know, one, one thing that I maybe sort of in closing, you know, talk about in the book is that this idea of self-preservation, it's easy to see it in competition, in a conflict style competition. You know, I'm fighting for my life. I'm going to, you know, win. I'm going to defeat the other person. It's harder to see it in accommodation or avoiding, but it's the same sort of instinct. In, in avoiding, it's conflict is dangerous to me, and so I'm just going to try to avoid it at all costs. And that's the, you know, my best way to sort of survive this. In accommodation, it's that if, if this relationship dies because I'm needy or because I want things or because I'm going to stand up for myself or for whatever those sort of reasons, then, then, then I die as well. It's still about me. And accommodation is still, even though it's giving away all this stuff, it's still about me. It's still about trying my best to manipulate or get other people to love me and trying to fit into whatever sort of mask I need to fit into to get that to happen. Where we, where we want and need to go is us preservation. And us yep. preservation includes me and you and uniquely us. And so the question isn't, what will happen to me if I do this thing or don't do this thing? It's what will happen to us. And and us us thinking to me is is the way out of this trap. It's not you thinking or me thinking. It's not self-preservation. It's not other preservation. It's us preservation that, that gets us to the space where I think we need to be to whether it's to overcome our own sort of personal weaknesses, our own self-conflict, as well as our conflict with others. I believe it. My friend, thank you so much. It was awesome. You're going to have to tell that self-loathing voice inside of you that (laughs) it was wrong. I think this is really going to help people. And I can't wait to hear some feedback from the podcast and I'll make sure I share it with you. Well, Chad, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Okay. You've been listening to Dangerous Love Podcast. Aloha.